podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi guys and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I hope you're well, I hope you're doing okay. This is part two of the interview with world championship winning F1 race strategist Mike Caulfield and in this episode he is going to talk to us about his time at Mercedes and Haas, what it was like to work with the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Michael Schumacher and Jensen Button, certainly quite a list there and of course some memories from that legendary 2016 season between Hamilton and Rosberg from the inside. Now of course if you haven't checked out part one I definitely recommend that you do so before going on to this one so if you haven't already Go back to that and then come back for part two. But until then, guys, hope you enjoy the interview and I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Let's talk about your career in F1, uh, if we can for a bit. Obviously, you started off uh, as a student placement in Honda back in 2006, if if I've researched this correctly. Um, How did that happen? Um, Was it always the plan for you from your school days to work in F1 or was, was it just something that became an opportunity and you sort of went for it? Yes, that's exactly it. I mean... Yeah, I was like, I was always a fan of F1, like when I was a kid. So, but even going into university, so even like, like going into doing an engineering degree, I didn't ever start university thinking, oh, I'm going to go and work in F1. I'm doing this to work in F1. It didn't even really cross my mind that it was a, a possibility to an extent. Um, it's like, but I was always, I was always good at the math and physics side of things. So engineering was always kind of like the, the, the avenue I was going to go down. And then it was just, yeah, I like, I was lucky enough that, yeah, this, the kind of advert came out that it was, uh, there was, there was a placement opportunity at Honda. And at that time, I think, I think teams did, most teams did them, but obviously not quite to the, to the levels with, which people are doing them now. So they're not kind of the structured kind of graduate student placements where they were. It was like, I mean, I think at the Honda one I went into was, yeah, we got an email through it for university. So just your general CV, et cetera, sent in interview. And I think there was literally, I think if I can count back around, there was six, six positions there for, for the year, for a year placement. And so I think there was kind of three in vehicle dynamics, two in systems and an IT guy. And that's like, yeah, I'm not even sure there was any error ones at that point. It might have been, but I can't remember that long ago now. Um, yeah. Was so aerodynamics, was, sorry, was aerodynamics an area that you were specifically interested in? Aero? Yes. Um, no, no, I mean, for me, I, I was never, no, not not really. Aerodynamics was never kind of my, my forte. It was, it was um, I, I enjoyed it, I, it was, but I was just, I was, I was never good enough. <laughs> so, yeah, quite, fr- quite frankly, I just didn't have the you know, the, the skill set for an aerodynamicist. It was just they are very, very clever subjects. I was just never quite that kind of scope. Now, I was always more interested in the kind of vehicle dynamics side of things. And even though I did a, surprisingly, I did an aeronautical degree, but that was more about like kind of control systems and um, just general uh, mechanical engineering in, in that respect. But um yeah, but I mean, in in that sense, I, I can't remember them being an aerodynamicist placement when when I was there. So, so yeah, but obviously now it's grown to the point where 
I think every team has a quite a good program involved, even if it's a student placement, which is a great place to get started, or a graduate placement. And I think it is it just allowed me to build those connections and that learning curve when you first go into it, working with experienced engineers and 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 it was just massively helpful. And like as soon as I got in there, like yeah, I get that thing. And as soon as I kind of researched, I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. Actually, I was like, again, like I said, I've been a fan all my all my life. I was like, why have I, why have I never really considered this? And that, I just never thought it was an option for me. Um, yeah, and then I went into it, and it was yeah, it was amazing. So it was yeah, definitely obviously helped me very much in in my kind of career I went into. So I went in as kind of a vehicle dynamics placement, but I got my first taste of strategy. So obviously back then strategy wasn't quite the level of strategy now so i think most teams had a strategist but it was literally one person so it's not like today's where most teams have three or four or five people in a strategy group and working underneath like a strategist then um kind of at honda was um yeah was james wells who's still the strategist at mercedes now so yeah i worked so I did basically a couple of days working for him a week in kind of strategy, kind of just building the kind of tool sets and the analysis tools. And um, yeah, it just kind of made me discover what, what I wanted to go into. And I was just lucky enough to build those connections and get that kind of work work placement and um, yeah, build my skill sets and allowed me to focus on what I wanted to go forward really. So, so I was really... I, I still say, say so. I was like, I mean, I worked hard to get there, but at the same point, I mean, there were six places. I was just lucky enough that potentially it wasn't advertised as widely as as maybe they are now. And like, it was a case of uh, the, there was a couple of universities and there wasn't that many people who applied for it. I mean, I think, like I said, there was six six people got it, or and I think there was only like seventy applicants or something. Um, whereas now, I think if these kind of things jobs go out to universities, you would, yeah, I imagine you'd going to get probably close to a thousand students applying for these kind of roles because uh, it's it's obviously a very sought after job. So it's um, and it is the way forward. I mean, just to just to mention it, what I saw um, today, but like Mercedes have posted a lot of apprenticeships um, for kind of roles. And one of the big main questions I always get asked, um, like on Twitter or LinkedIn or something like that, is just, well, how, how do I get into F1? How do, how do I become a race strategist? How do I say? And I think my main bit of advice is to everyone who, who wants to get into F1 is that for a start, don't aim for a specific role. Like, all right, it can be a goal, but like, don't kind of narrow down your options. Just getting into the team is fantastic because I have no idea, like, when I was going in, but a race strategist, I wanted to be a race strategist. I didn't, I didn't even really, I knew strategy involved in, in F1, but that was about as much as my kind of knowledge went to it. It was only being there and they started to do little bits and pieces in different areas and thought, ah, that's the one I really like the most. And like I said, it's just being involved in the company. So you never know what opportunities might present themselves and go, actually, that's, that's something I didn't realize existed and was, really interested in that or i can maybe see what more i need to do and work there so getting these kind of applying for these apprenticeships in in kind of in your early stage of your career if you really want to work in f1 is is an important important piece i think and yeah and just just working that kind of team environment is is a is a really good 
really good atmosphere. I know we've just talked about the, the workloads of F1 personnel, for, for, but like, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a great job. And especially when you're starting off, you're not, you're not quite under those kind of pressures. You're not going to be traveling. You're not going to be kind of expected to do like the levels of your, your more experienced personnel. And you're obviously at that stage of your career as well, where you you haven't had the enthusiasm beaten out of you. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was yeah that that's basically how it started off. And I was looking, I could just build my network and connections, and manage to obviously then continue forward and got the job at Mercedes once I'd finished university. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it was it sounds like an amazing experience, and you know, I did I did have a few questions about, but you've you've kind of answered all of them already for me on the, what the experience was like at Honda, and obviously being a student, obviously getting to see all these exciting things at Brackley, working at the factory, and obviously meeting people like and working with James Vowles, who for a lot of people will wonder who that is specifically. Yeah, James is the famous. Uh, an engineer on the radio with Valtteri Bottas where all those memes came from giving him those unpleasant instructions which I'm pretty sure James definitely didn't want to do but sometimes you've got to do that in order to win championships um in terms of your role uh, with Honda how did that differ to obviously you've just mentioned your experience at Mercedes when you joined them again in 2010 and this was after the redundancies at, at Honda obviously when they pulled out the sport Braun came in won a championship and then sold that to Ross Braun and Mercedes obviously came into the sport what was your role uh, when you came into Mercedes was it similar to what you did in your student placement or was it a bit more uh, oh how can I put this right uh, a bit more structured as it as it would be for a regular member of staff compared to a student yeah, it was um yeah, it was it was more so so yeah, obviously my role my role as a student was like vehicle dynamics group, industrial placement, um, doing a bit of strategy. And then when I came back, and obviously the work I'd done with James, like I kind of kept in touch with him. I did I actually did like my master's thesis with with him and Honda, like in a bit of a strategy, bit of a vehicle dynamics kind of role, um, looking at tires. Um, but I kind of kept those connections. And then when I came back into Mercedes, it was as a full-blown race strategy engineer. Um, so I was then very much in in the line of a, a race strategist um, uh, job. So it was more structured in that sense. As I was working then, I wasn't working in the vehicle dynamics group, but I was working for James. Um, but it was one of the, again, uh, one of the good things about Mercedes at that time, uh, obviously it's a very different um entity to what it is now um so but ross was ross was really because ross was obviously in charge at the point and he was really good in terms of he was wanting his younger people the younger members of staff to not pigeonhole themselves too much so he was really encouraging people to try different things so so that gave me the opportunity but even though i was working in the strategy with james and this is kind of a little bit of a, a good thing about the strategy job as well is that Strategy encompasses a lot of things because you need to have that big kind of understanding of your vehicle dynamics, of your race engineering, of your kind of everything that goes into the car performance, your competitor analysis. So working in that allowed me to kind of help out in the kind of simulator as well. So I'd go and kind of go and do a bit of kind of performance engineering and simulating, helping out the guys there. So learning off the actual race engineers or the performance engineers in that role as well, I kind of helped building with a co- help of a couple of others, help building up like kind of the race support, what we wanted to do with that, how you build the factory race support to help the, um, the, the racetrack. So again, in that kind of when I rejoined Mercedes in 2010, these 
you you see, I mean, I guess a lot of people have seen these huge kind of mission control, race control kind of the teams have now. When when I was back in when I first started, you the intercom was very flaky. Like it was, it was you didn't have that kind of direct audio stream that you have now. That kind of started getting implemented in those first couple of years I was there. You only had maybe six or seven people in on, on, a, on a weekend kind of doing little bits and pieces, whereas now those big teams, you're going to be having 20, 30 people and doing work and, and helping out. Um, but I was part of that kind of, I was given that opportunity as as one of the, the members back of the factory. It was obviously I was spotting James, but then I was helping out with a couple of other guys of helping building that process. So you got a bit experience a lot of things. Um, got to experience pit stops because again strategy obviously is very dependent on your pit stop so I could go and work help work out with the pit stop analysis so you got to work with the mechanics a little bit and got to know them um so it was a great I think it was a, it's a great thing about the strategy role is that it's not just your strategy it's not just like your weekend calling into pit stop you need to understand a lot of aspects of it you need to understand kind of the ins and outs of other areas too because it's all about performance, you need to understand the performance of your car. So you need to understand what's happening with your car to kind of to help you, you understand what you need to do and what you need to cater for. Um, so yeah, so those initial eras, initial era of my Mercedes one was was obviously building up my strategy knowledge. Um, it's one part of it. So again, continuing and building the tool sets, understanding races, understanding the kind of ins and outs, what I need to do to help there the analysis but also getting that understanding of other areas which feeds into the strategy group and, and then it helping out in those those areas as well so that was that was um yeah it was really really again the same as the honda one that kind of initial working environment that learning experience was fantastic um so obviously you've mentioned a lot about ross braun and obviously what it was like to work under him um total wolf obviously came in a little while after that and has obviously played a big part in helping shape mercedes uh to what they are today but obviously taking it down a completely different route to ross because obviously following uh ross's career he'd obviously been involved and been a huge part in building championship winning teams at benetton obviously ferrari and obviously being a part of honda which became braun and then mercedes after that um how do they differ what what was it uh, what was different about working under Toto compared to someone like Ross Braun? Um, I mean, I think it, I think it's difficult for me to give a direct comparison because obviously when when Toto came in, so, so obviously Toto initially came in and Ross was still there, and then obviously the reason Ross left was, or one of the reasons Ross left was obviously they brought Paddy in alongside. So Toto in that respect wasn't doing Toto was more running the the kind of business side of things and Paddy was running the um technical side of things whereas Ross was obviously your, your traditional team principal where he kind of everything kind of fell under him um in that one so while I was there and obviously Toto has then since taken it on to that more traditional kind of team principal role I'm not sure what his exact title is but now he kind of encompasses all under him Obviously, I, when I left, I left Mercedes at the end of 2016, and Paddy left at basically the same time as me. So, all the time when I was there with Toto, he was in that initial. That was he was in a kind of a more business focused role rather than the, the kind of team technical role. So I can't really compare them like for like. 
but I always, I, I always liked Toto. I always, I always thought he was a, uh, he was straight talking. I mean, obviously he was a, he, you see him on TV. I thought he, he was always kind of, he understood the ins and outs required for the team. I think I, I was, I was very impressed with him when, when I was there. Like, I, it was different to Ross, but like, I don't, I don't think those, I don't think that he, he didn't change things massively. He didn't kind of, there wasn't a huge swing of structure when he came in from what Ross was doing. What Ross was doing was obviously from the early days was providing that platform for what Mercedes success is going to be. And it's like, and just as obviously Toto came in, obviously the results hadn't been great for a couple of years, but they were just starting to show the reap the benefits. I mean, I still to this day kind of, I know everyone, everyone kind of harps on about like, obviously 2014 onwards was massively dominant for Mercedes, but I still think that 2013 season is probably the most under talked about performance for Mercedes in terms of their recovery from 2012. Because you got to remember, from 2012 to 2013, there was no regulation change, and Mercedes struggled in 2012. Like the car was not a good car; it just held on to fifth in the championship. It could have almost been sixth, finishing behind. Um, I think that last race was about Force India at that time, and I think Hulkenberg hadn't crashed out or something. It was it was potential for them to overtake. So you got to think at that point, 2012 was not good. As in Force India had a Mercedes-powered car, and they were potentially going to beat the works team. Um, and then it went obviously into 2013 and yeah there was no regulation change but Mercedes had understood the process started the process and considering also thinking that 2014 was this whole new change which was the main focus you could have been forgiven to for Mercedes point of view to say oh we'll just write off 13 we'll get going in 14 and put everything into it but 13 was such a success I know I know Red Bull ran away with it at the end but going into that summer shutdown I think Mercedes had won three races. We were only just behind Red Bull like going into um, the second half of the season. And then I think that was the one Vettel won nine races in a row or something like that. But um, And it kind of dropped away. But they still finished second in the championship. And and like I'll reiterate it again, it's like just the understanding and getting on top of the car and being able to develop that car with no regulation change to get it to a point where it was basically the sixth quickest car on the grid to the second quickest car on the grid before the regulation change was coming in 14 was was amazing and that was obviously all that was all ross's work it was all ross's structure and processes he put in place that were all set to come to fruition in 2013 in preparation for 2014 and i think even going through to obviously it might be a bit more diluted now but even going through to that kind of year Year late year 2018 2019 period, a lot of the kind of success that Mercedes has had is still born from the processes and operations and structures that Ross got in place from when he was there. And then, but I think Toto also is, is a good businessman. He is realized that he, he realized what wasn't broken. He realized he was like, right, these are good things. We need to continue this forward. This is this has been done for a reason. And obviously, some of the personnel started to change a little bit, and that's just natural. That's going to happen in any F1 team. It's um, you, you're gradually going to lose it. Um, and there's still some very good people there. Who well, there's a lot of good people there from when I was there as well. So you, you same, you're retaining the 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 experience and knowledge and and the the 
base basis for what made them such a good team. And I think that's why everyone's so surprised that this year's has been like the worst season start since I don't well since probably 2013 or 2012. And it's um yeah, it's it's a shock to everybody because F1, everyone tends to has kind of fairly short memories in it. You do, you don't kind of you only look back at the last few seasons and then base everyone off that and then it can quickly change. Well, that's it, isn't it? Because I find it fascinating when I when I sort of hear stories about how Ross worked at Mercedes and obviously the structures that were put in place, as you've mentioned, that's obviously served them so well today. And obviously Toto, one thing that I've see, heard a lot in terms of what people praise Toto Wolf over is that he can come at this with this business management approach where he already knows where he's learned where the strengths are in the team. He's got trusted people that he's delegating to certain people. I mean, you mentioned Paddy Lowe um, earlier on as a big part of that um, uh, building up to before he left in 2016. And obviously he's got people in place now that can look after certain facets of um, of Mercedes, if you like. If you're looking at a house and it has its foundations in place, he has those core structures there. And obviously he doesn't feel like he needs to micromanage me. And I mean, in the, I mean that in the nicest way possible because I know micromanagement can be used as a, as a negative. But in this case, obviously compared to what Ross was doing, Toto had those in place. He knows where people are strong and he can just let them get on with what they need to do and only have to intervene in an emergency circumstance where that requires it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that sums it up really. And I think that's my kind of opinion of him as well. It's just, yeah, he he understands what works. He understands he's very he's very he's obviously a very, very clever person as well. So he can if something is going wrong, he'll highlight the area which is going wrong and and it's not one of these ones where, I mean, I'm not going to name names or, or teams, but there's kind of like the certain teams where if something isn't going right, the first reaction is a wholesale change and massive restructuring. And you can, well, and like Toto's clever enough to realise, okay, so if something isn't working, it isn't, requires a wholesale restructuring, we need to figure out why it isn't working and just get the process in place to get that back on track. And obviously something's worked for the last eight years. So it's, um, we don't need the wholesale restructuring and, and it's never good. It, wholesale restructure doesn't ever produce results instantly. It's, it's always say like, I mean, going on looking at other teams is like, you look at McLaren's recovery and I think Zach Brown's another one who, like I've, I've obviously never worked for him, but you look at his kind of, since he's come in, again, he hasn't kind of tried to just rip everything out and start again. He's kind of looked to try to look at what worked, what didn't work, changed to maybe the culture a little bit, but he's kind of gradually done it. He's not tried to do it all, all at once. And you kind of see their recovery of coming back to a team, but it's a very strong competitive team. And it's like, I think he's another one who it's, it's, it's that understanding and, and that business mindset to kind of, work out what's what's working what isn't working and and don't panic if something isn't working but get on top of it as quick as you can yeah i couldn't agree with you more that sounds great and you might not want to mention names um but i certainly will that sounds a lot uh like pre-bonotto ferrari uh, sort of moving people about changing structures I'm sure there are other teams as well but as a Ferrari fan I can certainly relate to that and obviously you know they're doing a great job now because they seem to have put that all in in the right place and it seems to be going forward so hopefully for their sake that will continue um I want to ask about the drivers obviously some famous names that you work with Michael Schumacher Lewis Hamilton Nico Rosberg 15 world championships 
right there. That's not that's certainly not bad to put on a resume that you've worked with those three, uh, all at different times of their careers, of course. Um, what must that, that have been like? Because just saying those names and thinking about the, the possibility of working with people like that on a day-to-day must sound so intimidating, yet exciting at the same time. Got Jensen Button in there as well. Ah, so yes, sorry. I did, I did forget Jensen and, and Rubens, of course. <laughs> he never won a world championship, though. No, nope. very nearly, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, again, at, at different stages of my career, it's like, it's 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 very like, uh, yeah, when I first started, it's the, like seeing your Michael Schumacher walk into your office. So you, even Lewis Hamilton, like, all right, I've been in a few years at that point. It's you kind of like, you're nervous talking to them. I like, especially you hear stories about them. You don't know if they're true, but there's often like, like in any workplace, there's someone winding you up or kind of going, you, you, you can't, don't, don't say anything like that. Cause then the, it'll, it'll ruin it. Michael was an interesting character in terms of, obviously he was coming back and it's, uh, it was his second spell. And obviously things were a little bit different to how we were previously, like in, in, in result, in the results basis. Not, not purely down to him. Obviously, the car wasn't wasn't fantastic at that point, but he was a. I mean, you can you understood why he was world champion. He was very kind of focused. He was like he didn't take for any kind of. Uh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast or not? Uh, yeah, you can do. Yeah, just do that. He didn't take any bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, and and he could pick it up quite quickly as well. So, like. Um, yeah, he, he was he was very much that aspect of um, like if you if you told him something, try and be kind of as straightforward and direct as possible. Don't try and butter it up. Don't try and kind of paint it in like a way. It's just like if he asks you a question, just kind of give him the answers and like explain it to him. And, it, and he had a very understanding mind, so like he, he could always kind of he you would explain something if he didn't quite understand something, like. Or if he didn't quite understand something, he'd ask you more questions. But if he, if he could detect straight away, though, if you were trying to kind of just um, rosy, rosy something up, basically. Um, Nico, he was, yeah, I mean, he was, he was probably the most focused driver I think I've ever worked with, especially in that 2016 season. I've never seen someone as kind of, he, he, there was a reason he won. Well, there was a couple of reasons he won that 2016 one, but like I, I totally understand his reasons for why he retired. I, I kind of read, like, read into the amount of energy and effort he put into that championship. Like, again, someone like Lewis, which I kind of think we kind of he, he iterated to, but the fact that Lewis is a special, special character. He wouldn't, Nico has obviously never kind of come out and say, I'm not as talented as him. Because that's just the way Nico is, is like he's the mindset. But like the amount of work he had to put in relative to the amount of work Lewis had to put in just to match his level kind of thing. And just the amount of time he spent on the simulator or like meetings with his engineers or kind of looking at data and looking at all that are aspects. I've, I've never seen someone that kind of focused and dedicated in terms of drivers over the time years I've, I've done it. Um, I mean, what was the environment like working at Mercedes that year? Because, I mean, as fans, for me, it was one of the greatest uh, battles I've seen of all time between two drivers. It's similar to what we saw with Prost and Senna to a degree. I mean, 
what must have been like what was it like for you sort of working at Mercedes and obviously you've got all that going on and was there any sort of um I don't know were there any structures in place to try and keep things separate from one driver to another or was it that just purely down to what was going on at the track so so no I mean I think it was definitely looking back on it like I, I don't think I realized at the time potentially how tense it was but I think that was partly the aspect of um I was factory based and not track track side. I think at the track, obviously when the two drivers are in very close proximity, always there, I think the tension was kind of you could feel it. Um but at the factory we were kind of separated it from a little bit, but you could tell there was kind of there was little things creeping in here or there. I mean we had obviously there was a few incidents between the two of them and like so they had numerous kind of rules of engagement kind of documents which we had to kind of write up for them i mean they actually i think at one point it kind of formed the whole they had they had a legal document they had to sign kind of i can't remember after which race it was but basically it was a i can't remember i obviously wasn't wasn't visual to what they actually said in the document but it, it was kind of basically like if one of you crashes into the other again deliberately there are going to be consequences of, of, of a sort Spain 2016 is surely after that one must have been because that was the one where I think Lewis was forced onto the grass and he lost control and then went into the back of Nico wasn't it yes, no so I mean so no I don't I think that the the Spain one was obviously Nico kind of cut across him cut across, he didn't cut across he, like he went across and what actually happened on that one is that Nico was in the wrong strap mode to start with, so his engine went mm. into a deployment a lot earlier than it should, not deployment, um, recovering a lot earlier than it should do. So obviously, he suddenly had lost speed. He'd gone across to cover Lewis. Lewis hadn't realised that, obviously, and then went off and lost control. Yeah. yeah, and it happened. I think it was potentially it was after Austria. I think was the the main one because they had a teacher on the last lap. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. I think that's when it kind of that was the the final straw on that one, but yeah, I mean it was to a point. Obviously, the Mercedes was that dominant that year that every race it was basically they were one two on the grid. So you're just going into every corner, going like, if, yeah, one's going to kind of tr- just force the other off the track. Or as a, so every little kind, every little thing was having to be looked at and taken into account, and it, it took up a lot of resource. I think because. I think we they were lucky, Mercedes as a team were lucky at that point that it was an inter-team battle and there was no risk of another team coming up to it. Like, if you had that kind of same battle now with Max on you, Red Bull would walk away with this championship. It's, it's, it's not because you can't, you can't afford, I can under, you understand why the teams have, I know they don't say it, but one and two drivers, but you can't have your own drivers taking points off each other because you'll just open it up because it's just the amount of resource it takes from from like and distraction from actually getting the best out of the car is trying to deal with your two drivers and yeah i mean like i said in 2016 i didn't kind of realize it quite the intensity being involved in it so i think once you're involved kind of you you, you become accustomed to it and then obviously I, I left mercedes at the end of 16 so right, right at the end so i didn't then see the next chapter of it but obviously speaking to a few guys of it when Valtteri went there everyone's basically first comments was just like oh the atmosphere is just so much better this season <laughs> than it was last season um 
yeah so i think it i think it was a nice reset and like it it was one of those ones when you're involved with it you because you're involved you just it everyone was just pushing 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 to, to get it done and then it was it was that one like you came down to the last race and there's two of them and you were kind of even though it was like your team won no matter what so it didn't make a difference but like for, as a strategist kind of like i mean it, again, it's an inter-team strategy. So your, your choices are fairly straightforward because you always favoured the car in front because that's the rules. You shouldn't. You, there was no kind of um, aspect to kind of you. You wouldn't ever split to cars to try and do it. It was like no, these are the rules we're doing. But it was like kind of I was chatting to a guy who was like design, a designer or something. He's just like the pressure. I was just like I know it's I know like no one. I'll never be publicised. But what happens if it's my part that breaks in this last race, which costs? Mm. Nico the championship or cost Lewis the championship or one way or the other I favoured it because something I've designed has broken in it and like it's that kind of pressure which comes with it it's like it was awful for everyone I think it was nice when we got to the end because everyone relaxed and thought right okay it's done it's just just done (laughs) I can imagine after Malaysia when Lewis had that engine blowout and I just thought oh god like because it was a few times stuff like that had happened to him and I think Nico had the better rubber the green with that Um, I can imagine how they must have felt back at the factory thinking oh god not again and it it was ultimately the one that possibly cost Lewis that title in that race as brilliant as Nico was um, it did give him the opportunity to just take a P2 and he'd be fine but uh, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Huss before we sort of sign off if we can what was the motivation to joining Huss in 2017, I should say? Because obviously you, you, you've gone from winning three championships with Mercedes. You've worked there for as long as since 2006. You're familiar with all the people there. And obviously you wanted to seek pastures new uh, at a team that was fighting in the midfield. So uh, what, what was the motivation for that move? I mean, that was pretty much it, really. It's just um, he kind of had, had reached the point of kind of the stages as, as a race strategist felt like I'd done the things I'd felt um, I'd wanted to achieve. So I'd, I'd built my experience up. I'd worked with a group of great group of people. I'd won three world championships. And it was with that kind of aspect for like, all right, and I, I need now the next bit of progression in my career. And the way Mercedes was going at that point was obviously a very successful team, but because they were successful, there wasn't the kind of these avenues opening up for kind of new possibilities of becoming a trackside engineer, a strategist, um, or doing new things because the company was just changing in, in, in that, that area. So the only real way was to kind of go to another team. And obviously the opportunity has came along. And I thought, yeah, it was it was obviously very different to to my Mercedes experience. It was a the probably the biggest team on the in in the grid to the smallest team in the grid in terms of personnel size and the amount of time they've been in the sport, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, it was just a case of I just wanted a I needed a new challenge. I, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to be that kind of head of strategy trackside role, and. Um, yeah, and achieve it. And there, there was an up, there, that was an opportunity. I mean, there was a, there was an opportunity at a couple of other teams as well. Um, and I just thought Pass was actually probably the one which just felt right for me at that point, because just in terms of the job and the kind of ability I'd have to bring my experience and knowledge to, to the role was 
potentially with a couple more te- other teams which are a bit more formed, they may have had structures and stuff in place which I wouldn't be able to put my own kind of mark on. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was the main reason, really. It was just I kind of... It, it's a weird thing to say, but it's like, uh, a couple of days, so do, everyone always asks me, do, do you regret leaving Mercedes? And I was like, no, that's actually one thing. I was like, I do never for one day. The only thing I regret, or not regret, is missed about Mercedes was the canteen. Because they had some really good food there. <laughs> they had some good lunches. That was, that was good. And I worked with some great people, don't get me wrong, but I still managed to see them and catch up with them as well. But at the same time, you felt at the end of 2016, the company was changing. The company was, or the team, sorry, was changing. The kind of, it wasn't the same atmosphere as it, it had been. And I don't know if that was a consequence of how the season had gone in 2016 and manifest itself forward. I don't know if it was a change of kind of like how people, the new people coming into it, the size, the size it was growing to because it took on a kind of rapid increase in growth in terms of personnel coming in like 15, 16. And so I don't know how much they were, that was an aspect of it. But it just kind of felt that my time was, it was right to move on and try something new. And yeah, like I said, I never to this day, like regret my decision. It's like, it is, I don't believe it. I think, I think the things I've actually achieved out of Haas, it was one, a lot of the things were, I was always confident I could do it in myself. But I've obviously never done it. So I had those questions I wanted to answer for me. It's like, can I actually do that job? Can I be that one who makes that call on the pit lane? What happens if this situation happens? I've I've always had the safety net of being the one level down. So I was never that kind of front line in in terms of calling it and then actually coming up and, and doing that. And it's the other things like getting to work with the drivers closer, closer than I've, I've done previously, being trackside, doing the travelling. Um, yeah, it's it was it was just the right move at the right time, I think, for me. It's like it got to the point of Mercedes where I felt like it was becoming very, very repetitive mm. um in terms of my job role. It's just like the progression I felt as I, I, I kind of reached a uh an end in in that respect. Yeah, I, I could totally understand that because I, I think in other sports some people might look at it as thinking that you're making a step down but the reality is is that in f1 each team has its own merits for wanting to go there it's not necessarily a case of oh you have to be at mercedes or ferrari at red bull just because they're the biggest teams or mclaren um there's obviously a lot to offer from one team to another even if a team like us as you say so um even though in terms of the pecking order or speed it is a step down it's certainly not a step down in terms of the job that you're going for because obviously you wanted that career progression and an opportunity to sort of make your lay your marker down in the f1 world yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think I think at the time before I'd actually joined Haas, like some one of my mates had asked me, who wasn't really into F1, um, but he's kind of like, "Well, why are you doing it?" I was like, "And he's he's a big Man City fan, so and he, and he, I kind of he said, I said to him, "Well, it's basically like I'm sat on the bench at Man City and getting twenty minutes or twenty minutes every couple of weeks when I'm getting to go down to your mid mid table side, but starting every week." Uh, so it was just, yeah, it was. It has that aspect really in, in, in and there's still opportunities and it's actually and this is something I didn't realise before I went as well that your actual no matter where you are in the grid so like obviously everyone wants to win everyone wants to get on the podium but you've always got your battles so like finishing fourth 
no, we didn't finish fourth. We finished fifth. We almost finished fourth um, in the championship in in twenty eighteen with Haas finishing fifth. Like that battle for trying to finish fourth. If we'd finished fourth, and I know we just missed out, and like, but it would have been, it would have been like winning a, a championship because you were never, we were never going to compete with your Mercedes. Red Bull, Ferrari. That just wasn't going to happen. And you understand that. But if you could have finished fourth in the, the constructors, that's basically winning a championship. Or it's the same in those seasons where you finish you finish six, but you're the top. Like the only cars in front of you are a Red Bull, a Mercedes, and a Ferrari. And you're kind of great. It's like that's the best this car can done. It's like we've won a race. So you take you take your achievements from where you can. And it's like, all right. It's a, as you go further on the grid, it gets a little bit harder. Like, um, don't get me wrong, twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one was not a lot of fun. And finishing thirteenth when you potentially should have only finished fifteenth, I took no pleasure out of that. No, there, there, there was no kind of great achievement from that. But like that mid table, that mid mid table, get me spots mixed up. The midfield battle when when I was involved in Haas was was some of the most pleasure and enjoyment I'd got out of um yeah got out of like F1 strategy in the, in the whole time I'd been in and, and I learned a lot as well I learned that like your strategy your strategy where you are in the field is very different um, regardless like leading a race compared to midfield or at the bottom requires a so different outlook like because you got the car pace you've you, your strategy, while your strategy helps you, you can it can it can be the difference between um, between winning and second. But the worst, if you get the strategy wrong, the worst you're going to finish is maybe third. Whereas, like if you get a strategy wrong in the mid in in the in midfield, you could potentially be missing out on a seventh spot and finishing fourteenth, and that's a disaster for those because every little point counts because it's so tight in there. And it's um, but yeah, it made it really interesting. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you about, because I, I imagine that, you know, going from Mercedes to Haas, obviously there is a difference in performance on the surface, but I don't imagine the workload to be any easier for you. If anything, I'd imagine it to be more intense because you're having to do the same job as you were at Mercedes, like maximising efficiencies and getting the most out of what you have, but you have less available to you in terms of resource. And of course, you've got that competition in the midfield where if you took, hypothetically, you took Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, out of the equation you've got yourself a championship right there where on any given day one of five six teams could come out on top so it's so critical to make sure that you've got your strategy spot on the drivers are doing what they're doing and and everything's just running like clockwork because everyone else is doing the same thing under such fine margins you don't have that performance buffer yeah exactly yeah no that's pretty much sums it up really yeah it's um it's definitely yeah it's it's more work than being well First fact, you're in a team which is 200 people in it compared to a team that has a thousand people in it. So, like the things which just appeared in your inbox before, which you could use as information, you were then having to go and find someone who had the time and resource to or knowledge to try and get that information, or you're trying to guide other areas of the company to do stuff which they hadn't been doing. So, I think that's why one of the reasons why Has kind of wanted me to come in as well is that I had my knowledge from a big team. To try and concentrate and right, what else can what my experience and knowledge bring to this role? What aren't we currently doing that we can maybe try and do within our resource? Because obviously you can't match a Mercedes with a thousand people, with two hundred people, but 
what can what do you think we need to look at what do we need to kind of get out what can we do feasibly and then yeah and then it's kind of like building up all the kind of tool sets and developing and just trying to get the focus of the of the kind of yeah the field the uh, the team in in the right direction but no it was great fun it was really good at us yeah yeah good team uh, it, it certainly sounds fun and of course you obviously talked about the issues that they had uh, in 2020 and 2021 how that was a difficult year um so before we wrap this up i mean i just wanted to ask you about that briefly um how difficult was that in 2021 because obviously the priority was purely just focus on next year's car hardly any resource there were upgrades that were sort of homologated uh from the previous season um what how difficult was it to sort of get through that season? Was it just holding on to the hope that 2022 was always going to bring bring a brighter day or was it just a case of just take things one day at a time and just hope that it, things get better? I'm not sure I can answer that because I didn't get through 2021. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that answers the question, um, I suppose. <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was difficult. It was, it kind of, it, it was the first kind of indications of the kind of that kind of difference in team between a, like your established bigger team. Whereas like there's lots of rumors kicking around with us and I was like, and to a fair play to like kind of people like Gunther and stuff. So they kind of reiterated, it was like, no, there's, there's no issue. It's like, everything's kind of all fine. You obviously see the input of kind of like um, Nikita and his dad coming in and obviously more rumors start up kind of thing and then you start questioning and it's like you see people hanging around the team which you haven't seen before and you kind of you, you do wonder of like what, what direction the team's heading and and yeah it's I think the most difficult thing is is for is to just keeping the morale of people up and like I said it goes back to the conversation we had earlier about the season's long and it's an intense season and you 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 turn up, you work, you still work hard and you get no results and you know your prospects of getting any results is difficult. So it's very tough in, in, in that respect. And I, I like, like I said, I, I didn't get all the way through the season. So like, and, and it wasn't purely because of that. It was, it was, it was um, over, over issues, um, over aspects why I, I left a little bit earlier, but yeah, you've got to give full credit to the to the guys who just stuck it out and kept going because it wasn't easy. It really wasn't. And like you said about the point of kind of saying, well, was it the, the process of this year going to be better? Well, potentially, but at the same time, you kind of think, well, we just don't know if this year was going to be any better because you just don't, with new regulations, you just you didn't know where, where other people were going to stand. So, I mean... Obviously, first few races. I mean, it's a much step to improvement. I think that's they're actually the teams racing again, and which is just which is good, which is obviously a fantastic aspect of it, and and that gives you that little bit more energy and that little bit motivation again. So, so that's so that's good from from their side of view. But yeah, you got to September October last year, and other than being told, well, it's all going into next year. I mean. Yeah, I guess it depends on your viewpoint in life, and maybe I'm a little bit too cynical. I've been around, so I was like, well, uh, I, I read in, I look at the competitive stuff. I, I kind of think, say, yeah, but every every team's looking at next year, and every team's got to like, we've got a bigger step to find than everybody else. And it's like, oh, not lose as much kind of thing. So it's, um, yeah, I think other than other than that, that's all you could hope for. I mean, if this season hadn't been a, a an upturn in form. I 
I would have been concerned. Yeah. I think just because you're like, yeah, for purely because the message was everything's gone into this season. And if this season had turned out to still be in a struggle, then you would have, the team would have, I think, yeah, they've had some kind of big question. I think Gene would have probably been having some, some second thoughts about it. Um, and that's obviously not on top of how, how things have developed in the other part of this year with other things. Um, but I think Kevin as well coming back is a is a massive boost to the team as well. I think having that experienced head in there is and he's well liked. He was always well liked when he was there before. So I think having him back in the team is has been an additional boost as well as a performance, which is yeah. Yeah. It's it, good to know. I, I mean I'm really happy. Like I can like I know I'm not there and I'm but like I keep in touch with them and I'm I'm delighted for the results they're having this season. And yeah, it's 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 only really good, good battle in that midfield between a number of teams. Mm. It, it certainly is exciting, and I'm I'm glad to see that Haas is certainly uh, what they did in 2021. It's certainly paying off for them 2022, and obviously things are looking up. So hopefully that can continue for them. Um, one final question, and it's going to be a nice, quick one, hopefully for you. Um, do you have a favourite strategy call or a favourite race that you were involved in throughout your career? Um, I get asked this a lot, and it's kind of. I don't, in, to an extent, um, until someone reminded me of the um, the hungry call in 2020, um, which um, were all right. It was classed as illegal, where we pitted before the start to get off the wet tires and put dries on. Um, but at the same point, we were had a car which was going to be at the back, so it got us running third, third and fourth at one point in that race, and would have had both cars in the in in the points if we didn't have the penalties. And so it's kind of like. But still, we got points in a race which we'd have never got points. So it was making that call was it was definitely uh, the right thing to do. And like looking back on it, you just obviously it's highlighted it to everyone else now. But like we were the only ones to do it. It was a ballsy call to make. If we'd been fair up the grid, probably wouldn't have done it. So it's kind of that benefit of being we've got to take a chance. But it was it was it's the one obviously the one which sticks in my mind the most because. Yeah, I got a bit of praise for it for a start, and uh, I think it only got us points in a season where we only got three points the whole season. So, I mean, that was the difference between us finishing ninth and tenth in the constructors, which I know is isn't anything to show show about, but it's prize money at the end of the day. And then prize money going into after twenty twenty, where money was at premium, was was crucial for the team. So, I'm I'm proud of that one. And then generally, when people ask me about it, is for like. Anytime you kind of make a strategy call where you kind of get that undercut or kind of or overcut or you just your car comes out of the pits and you just go and get out and through a car you're battling with, that kind of gives you that kind of like a little G up and that and anything like that because you put so much work into it and you're trying to kind of take into account so many different kind of aspects and um and scenarios of what's gonna be happening for you can never obviously plan for every single permutation that's going to go on in the race, but you you get make a call right, or you you predict something. You 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 kind of focus this one we're going to do this with a this and everything comes off. There's some kind of satisfaction from that. So just in general, that like uh, I enjoy I enjoy racing with people right in, in my strategy career, that which is why again twenty one and twenty in 2020 weren't great because we were never racing with anyone it was kind of uh oh you're racing for williams for kind of not being last and it was just like 
I don't take any pleasure from that. Even if you win it, you kind of like, oh, well, that's what it is. But all those other ones are just, they're all kind of, I don't say merge into one, but they, they're all an achievement for me. And they all, I like any time I make a call, which is worked, it's fantastic. Just as when, if you make a call that goes wrong, it's absolutely devastating. But it's, um, that's, the, that's the life of the strategist you try and just try and outweigh the bad calls with the good calls. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I don't envy the Ferrari race strategist that has to come up with a whole alphabet worth of strategies uh, on the team radios so often. It's nice to hear plan A's working every so often rather than going to B, C or D. And I, I just, I, I think of that and I sort of wonder how many plans do you guys draw up over the course of a weekend? I'm almost afraid to sort of contemplate that because it must be several. It's, well, it depends on how you look at it. So, I mean, like, if you have two cars close to each other, you probably have, in my eyes, you're like, with the tyres generally as they are, you'll have three plans. You'll have a plan A, plan B, plan C. And if your tyres are cars are both sat on the same tyre, generally your plan A will be the same and your B and C might be inverted because your B and C are because something's happened in plan A, which means you have to go to that alternate one or you drop some positions or yeah, you're not sure how the tyre is going to perform, so we're going to try something a little bit different. And you want to kind of invert your drivers. Your reason why you don't you don't go for like always in the back of your mind, you probably have other plans. You you'll be looking for scenarios which happen which may change it, but you can't go into a if you go into a race with too many options, then you clearly haven't got the narrowed it down to what's optimum or how you believe the race is going to play out. So obviously you need to be reactive if some, something unexpected does happen. And those kind of plans are kind of side plans, but you never kind of designate them as a, as a distinct plan. And then the other reason why you wouldn't go in with more than three or four plans maximum is because you've got to deliver them to the drivers as well. So the drivers, you want to give them as much but as little information as possible so they understand what you're doing, but they can't obviously be expected to remember everything going forward. So, so that's why... Yeah, I, I'd always, as from my point of view, for each driver, I'd try and give them as most three plans. Ten, occasionally, there'd be a fourth plan, and then, and sometimes it'd be the same for both drivers as well. So, like, depending on where your position were and who you're fighting and what you believe your pace were, that's what you publicize. Obviously, on top of that, you have all your kind of safety car plans, you have your kind of Incident lap one incident plans. You have your VSC plans. You have all then kind of side plans on that. But it's just again, it's like what I mentioned earlier. It's like that kind of chess situation. But you're trying to look from where you are and who you're fighting of what's what move you need to make to counteract what move they may make, or do you need to make it first, or react, etc. Et so you're just getting all that focus in your mind of what what you need to be looking out for and how you would um, counteract it or be proactive going forward. And that's the kind of, that's what you kind of keep internally. And that's what makes you good strategist from your, I'm not going to say bad strategist because there's no bad strategist, but you kind of, your good strategist from your maybe slightly less experienced strategist who hasn't maybe come across some of the situations before. So it doesn't come across their mind of, certain aspects they may be looking out for until they've actually experienced it. And it's amazing as a strategist, as soon as you experience something for the first time, 
that does stick in your mind and the, you're always aware of it and ready for it and the next time it happens yeah well maybe that's what happened in Hungary 2021 everyone was learning from what you did the season before and and except for Lewis everybody decided to make that call and pit um but you know there we go <laughs> the Mike Caulfield lesson there right uh from yeah the F1 archives um I mean that was great Mike um we've got a lot there so I'm probably going to do this as a two-part uh, series for our listeners but uh, for the benefit of those that follow on social media where can they find you on social media if you want people to find you of course um yeah so i've got like i'm basically just twitter i mean i'm actually i've got my account locked at the moment but like feel free to send a follow and i may select a few i might open it up at some point but it's at mike caulfield f1 it's my uh, twitter handle um yeah and to take a look on there i also have a personal account but i'm not going to publicize that one no, i try and keep that one just about f1 <laughs> <laughs> no that's fine of course you know i always encourage our guests to plug their socials if they want to but of course that's absolutely fine um but no that was brilliant mike i really really appreciate you uh giving up your time to come on the show there's certainly a lot uh to get stuck into with that a lot of stuff to uh sort of listening for those of you that are following um but as always guys if you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast please like and give us a well subscribe to the channel if you are watching us on youtube and of course if you think we're worthy of a five-star review please do consider giving us one and we'll reward you by giving you a shout out on the next episode but until next time guys thank you so much for tuning in stay safe and we'll see you in the next episode of the dnf1 f1 podcast take care Podcast Network.